1: I'm Kyle Meredith, and I
0: host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with
1: from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Discography is brought to you by Reverb LP, a marketplace for used and new music. Vinyl, CDs, tapes, even reel-to-reel. With buyer protection and impeccable selection, if you're looking to complete your discography, there's no better place. Shop for music on the go with the Reverb LP app, available on Android and iOS, or find them online at lp.reverb.com.
0: Hello, and welcome to Discography. I'm your host, Marco with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this here show on the Consequence Podcast Network, but I've also been releasing lo fi pop records independently for about 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canon albums of first-release material to see who the music says that they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective and, up front, discography can be a pretty personal journey for me. Just letting you know from the get-go. Let's get on with the show. The Who, Were and Are, one of the biggest rock groups of all time. They've been referred to as the greatest live rock band of all time. They've been considered the loudest rock band of all time. They've sold well over a hundred million records worldwide. They pioneered the rock opera, the concept album, what a pop song was and could be, how the electric bass could be used, practically invented the idea of the internet in 1970, and hardly anyone even knew that at the time. They could pummel you into submission with one well-chosen chord. They can make you weep from having your soul filled up spiritually, they can make you feel less alone, and they can frankly predict your own future thanks to Pete Townsend's ability to write alternately for very specific ages, the most ageless lyrics around. Constantly name-checked in the pantheon of MOST IMPORTANT GROUPS EVER, inarguably in the same column as your Beatles, Stone, Zeppelin, and Pink Floyd. I said that they sold over 100 million records worldwide, and well, their records are very good. Great in fact, in some cases the albums are without flaw. But when we chose to talk about The Who for season 3 of Discography, I found that the bulk of their story is really sort of what happened not just between the albums, but as a result of them. Oftentimes, to discuss one album, you'll need to dissect the three scrapped ones that would lead up to it. Plus, the band really began before the album itself had become the king of the music marketplace, so just this once, we're modifying how we do discography for one season and one season only. We're telling you as much as we can about the records and how they got to where they are, but the albums themselves are often only the summation of the events that led up to them. But also, The Who are four distinct individuals with their own personalities, styles, musical achievements, and intentions, and for this reason, we're not just going to go through the canonical albums this season. We're going to go through nearly every solo album from each member as well, and we're not stopping there. Usually on discography, we'd stick to the studio albums of first release material, but this time around, there's a few live albums and compilations that we'll simply have to bring up. With an over 50-year career, we still just can't possibly make time for everything. You're going to get more than you bargained for this season. But even though this season nearly broke your host, (laughs) I mean it, this season nearly broke me. We still can't sum up such an amazing, eventful, and flat-out strange career, even if we did a weekly podcast on The Who for a full 50 further years. This is what we can do and we hope you'll stick around for the ride. And we're proud to bring you Discography's take on The Who. But first, in the interest of full disclosure, The Who were actually my very first favorite band. My first time really noticing their existence was a videotape of a 1982 show in Toronto at a babysitter's house. I was around 5 or 6 years old when I saw this, and I would liked some bands from the radio like Duran Duran, but this didn't look like any band I'd ever seen or heard from MTV. They could have bum notes, and instead of choreographed dancing, the energy would overtake the guitarist who would leap around and swing his arm. And the singer would spin his microphone as if it were the blades of a helicopter, and the bass player didn't even seem to want to be there, but his fingers sure looked busy. And everyone watching with me kept going on and on about how the old drummer was so much better, and I'd never seen anything like it. This group was singing songs about pinball and spiders and drowning and being unable to fully explain any of it. And there was nothing else like them in my scope of youthful vision at the time. I was transfixed. And at that moment, though I'd eventually love all genres of music, the Who became the group that I'd always come back to. The Bedrock. The Signpost. Really? Home. So yes, I have been a lifelong fan. But I didn't learn about their history in any chronological way, because that 1982 show wasn't even all that well loved by fans who had seen them for years, but it tore this kid's head off. And when I heard Tommy, it didn't even sound recognizable compared to what I'd heard in the live performance, nor could I fathom that a whole bunch of songs could come together to tell a story. And once I heard the leaden and metallic live at Leeds past that, I couldn't believe how sludgy they were at one time. They'd seemed to have a different personality with each release I'd get my hands on. I was lucky to hear The Who at a time where you just sorta had to accept that though the world may have seen them as one thing, there's really nothing that they couldn't or didn't do musically. And no matter what type of music or mood you want, The Who will dabble in it. Each new move must have seemed like a musical revolution, but if you look backwards, you can just apply that this group could do anything at all under the sun but they chose to do it together. But it was practically divine intervention that got them started even at all. So let's start back in 1964. In 1964, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp had a vision. As the legend goes, they'd pick a group out of the rising beat music scene in London, manage them to success and film it all the while, eventually showing their hand at management as art, which was virtually unheard of and quite the daunting task, but one look at a mod group called the High Numbers at the Railway Hotel and they'd found their band. Oh sure, they were a little bit unpolished, but Lambert and Stamp had a vision and the fledgling High Numbers didn't exactly have a more enticing option nipping at their heels. That group, though, they were made up of Roger Daltrey, who was a former sheet metal worker raised on skiffle that had first put a couple of area musicians together under the name The Detours. There was the tall, lanky, sardonic, and stoic John Entwistle, who had been weaned on the French horn, but eventually graduated to hand-building his own electric bass guitars, which is how Roger noticed him in the first place. John was locking time with the drummer to end all drummers, Keith Moon. It was like equal parts Dennis the Menace, Andy Dick, but nothing but heart. Keith and John created a formidable rhythm section. Plus, the hyper-energized Keith was certainly among the most visually arresting drummers that rock and roll had seen at the time, but he was a little more into surf music than the R&B numbers that the group and their audience favored at the time, and of course, there was the guitarist Pete Townsend, an art school student that would go on to be the wellspring and creator of the gang's wildest ideas and most beloved songs. The high numbers already had a record out. It was a single called Zoot Suit with On the Face as the flip side. But these were embryonic recordings. Songs that already existed with rewritten lyrics by then-manager Pete Meaden to pander to the lifestyle of the mod, which is the group of young people that love this ragtag bunch so much. When Kit and Chris took over, the name was dropped. It was suggested that the band try to write their own material, and with that, The Who were off to the races. Early footage of the band at the Railway Hotel shows a much more reserved group than one might expect, and while each member of the band's at time could easily carry the moniker of being the band's secret weapon, it was really Pete's luck that he'd been bequeathed the slew of incredibly obscure and rare blues records that the band could pull covers from when needed. Loud blues and Motown covers would eventually meet in the slogan, Maximum R&B. Word of mouth spread as the band loosened up on stage. Pete would break his guitars while considering it to be auto-destructive art. Keith would join in and kick his drums all over the place. These boys weren't going to wear matching suits like the Beatles and heck, they hardly even smiled on TV. Word of mouth spread that there was no stage act like The Who and this made it much easier for their new management to land them a record deal. The first fruits of said deal was the release of their first single, Pete Townsend's original I Can't Explain, released at the tail end of
2: 1964. Inside, can't explain, kind,
0: can't As a single, it's a bit of a deceptive number, seeming to play to the three-chord standards of the day, but brought to life with a peppy backbeat, the sound of keeping up appearances while you're torn apart internally. As fans would tell Pete just how much the mixed-up emotions and the lyrics resonated with them, he saw a parallel that his art school heart could live with. As the audience was his patron, their cries of, we want more, would become his commission. And Pete attacked each successive recording from a mindset of art long before many would have ever considered rock and roll to be such a thing. It helps to remember that plenty of adults still saw rock music as a fad, especially in 1964, and this accounts for how forward-thinking the band's releases could often be. By March of 1965, as seen in scraps of surviving video footage of the band playing one of their most popular haunts, the stage act was containing more swinging arms, windmills, feedback, and moments where a rather angry-looking Pete would hold his arms to the side and let his overdriven Rickenbacker guitar make noises all on its own in a pose that had come to be known as the Birdman. By the time April of 1965 rolled around, the group was working on sessions for its first full-length album, but it's worth mentioning that at the time, bands lived and died by the single. Albums, those were things that hardcore fans bought, but the individual tracks are what the record companies were most concerned about at the time. Meanwhile, getting past the club circuit level wasn't going to be as easy, because the BBC hardly played pop or rock music at the time, and when they did, it'd have to be specially recorded for the radio to get past the rules of the UK's Musicians Union. You can really thank the offshore pirate radio stations for sending I Can't Explain to number 28 on the NME charts and that follow up single was no slouch either a track called anyway anyhow anywhere a co-write between Pete and Roger that would eventually go on to be the theme song to the UK answer to American bandstand ready steady go Amazing stuff for a single that dropped out of the sky with a raging middle section that contains what's likely the first intentional guitar solo made up almost entirely of feedback and amplifier noises. Producer Shel Tommy miked the band as best as he could to try to commit the band's confrontational live show to disc. It was potentially seeing a bigger public reaction to the pop leanings of The Who's 7-inch singles that made the group decide to scrap their debut album altogether in July of 65. Though they'd certainly used many of those recordings over the years, the party line at the time was that the group planned to go in a direction that was described as hard pop, rather than the Tamla Motown covers that they'd been relying so heavily on in the sessions. And you can see in early footage shot at the Richmond Jazz and Blues Festival that even the formerly very tough-acting Roger was getting into this destruction a little bit, banging his microphone against Keith Moon's cymbals, eventually knocking over pieces of the kid himself, and that confidence was on full display when The Who showed up to perform for the last episode of the popular TV show Shindig to play I Can't Explain, the maximum R&B of a B-side called Daddy Rolling Stone, and an embryonic version of a song that would change absolutely absolutely everything for the band. Try
2: to put down, cause we get
0: By October of 1965, the finished version of the single My Generation had risen to number two on some charts, and everyone in its path had their bell rung. Arguably one of the most enduring, exciting, and incisive teenage anthems of all time, it quickly thrust the Who right into the spotlight, and that brings us to the first official Who album, my Generation, unleashed on a largely unsuspecting world in December of 1965. Ow! It's fitting that the band didn't think very highly of their own debut record. It's certainly a hodgepodge of various scrap sessions rushed out by their UK label to capitalize on the success of the teenage anthem found in the title track. Three cover tunes, two of which were by James Brown, one was a Bo Diddley cut, and most of the rest are Pete Townsend's first attempts at pop songwriting. Meanwhile, everyone else in my generation's path heard it as what it was, a bang-up garage rock record made by an excited and dangerous group of youngsters that may still be finding their feet but also may not know how good they actually already are. For an example of the oddball crossroads that the band would already find themselves at, one needs look no further than the opening cut out in the street. Pete would claim that his original lyrics for the cut were changed by Kit Lambert to become a bit tougher, a bit more street savvy. Pete's already dissatisfied with the way his hard mod pop is being handled despite the breathtaking bass work Sir Entwistle's already laying down and we're not even out of the opening jam. But there's no getting around the fact that no matter how cobbled together the debut is, as a band, the four straight up sound like a gang, a very together thing that knows something that you don't and may God have mercy on you if you dare to ask. Pete was able to make demos of these early cuts with the duo of Revox Tape Machines and while he might bring in a song with, say, a Johnny Cash feel, by the time the track was done, it'd sound definably Who. If you want your maximum R&B fix, dig their take on I Don't Mind, Please Please Please, or I'm a Man, though I'm a Man may not be on your copy of the album as it was replaced in some territories by a track known as Circles, but they'd accidentally title it Instant Party and... Okay, look, this is actually a pretty problematic record. It can be both a killer set of tunes and completely perplexing if you think too hard about it, and I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself, but as I touch on the variations of some of these albums, I realize how often I'm going to have to mention this kind of thing, so now's as good as any time to start, right? Back to the album. On those R&B ditties, Roger isn't singing like the screaming golden god one might imagine him to be. He was in a period of trying to find the right voice for the songs and this was a journey he'd undertake for quite a few years to come. It was easy when the song already existed, he would just emulate a growly blues shout like the one he'd heard on the original recording and be done with it. But when Pete would bring in something like It's Not True, one of those songs that started vaguely countrified in the demos but became a hard pop jam in the studio and it has lyrics like I weren't born in Baghdad, I'm not half Chinese either, and I didn't kill my dad, Well how would you have sung it? Pete's lyrics could often be tongue-in-cheek and playful in the early years, which wouldn't always sit snugly with Roger's schoolyard sneer, and when you consider that Pete would write these insanely high harmonies just to please Keith, the diehard Beach Boys fan, it's a wonder that Roger just didn't give up altogether. This band was changing faster than his voice could keep up with, and these are all factors that may contribute to this album not always coming up in the conversation of best debut records of all time and the sound of the My Generation album is pretty unique. And as one considers that Shell Tommy had a penchant for recording all of the instruments in the red, and kind of overdriven from the word go, there was no way this thing wasn't going to sound like a tornado ready to tear your speakers into pieces, and that's how songs that might be throwaway pop fare for other groups of the time become so damn striking here in stuff like La 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 Lies.
2: This girl with eyes like gems echo reactions to your lies, lies, lies.
0: Every cut here is a monster in its own right, whether it's the plaintive I-have-to-leave-you-to-save-myself-much-too-much, much, the off-time-but-just-dangerous-enough riffage of The Goods Gone, or the smashing instrumental called The Ox, starring the band's rhythm section and some tasty piano licks from Nicky Hopkins. But as rock and roll was in its infancy, to the untrained ear some of these tracks may come off as a bit interchangeable. And for that very reason, I'm going to talk about my picks for the indisputable highlights of this album, assuming that I only get two of them this time, right? So shouldn't be hard to predict what they'll be, of course. First up, we know it's going to be The Kids Are Alright.
2: I don't mind The guys kind of dancing with my girl
0: 60s pop music just does not get more forward thinking than this. John Lennon's writing lines like, I'd rather see a dead little girl than to be with another man, but Pete is more or less saying, eh, it's cool, do whatever I trust you, and besides, I'm not that great. And then he hands the song to the guy he once described as the king of the neighborhood for the vocals. And as a result, you have a disarmingly sincere Roger surrounded by some pillowy and warm vocal harmony. And if you like a little less toxic masculinity in your rock music, Pete's got you covered here. And also, dig the way that this band can build and release tension on a win as a unit. It's My Generation, the title cut itself that we gotta talk about. When Pete first stammered on the demo, he thought he was emulating vocal tics he'd heard elsewhere, much like the windmill he quote-unquote stole from Keith Richards, which was really just Pete watching Keith stretch before the curtains open. Well, Roger turned the stutter up to 11 to sound like a pilled-up mod teenager. John Entwistle plays a bass solo in the middle and there'd never been anything like it in rock music before, not like this. And while Pete sometimes gives you power chords, sometimes feedback, it's the melodic counterpoint response that he gives John between bass runs that really shows off their growing symbiotic relationship of playing off of each other. is the word here everything sounds sharper than a box cutter being jabbed in the ear but for my money the real heart of this track is the driving rhythm allow me to give you an example see in the beginning of each vocal line you get a halftime set of hand claps then keith comes in at full tempo but he's also throwing some swing in by playing 16th notes on the ride cymbal. it's a mouthful it's harder to replicate than it sounds but it's unmistakable once you notice i mean just Listen to the very beginning, you'll see what I mean. I asked Jim Myers, who's the drummer of my stage band and the leader of the group Milk Carton Superstars, to help me put Keith's drum parts into words here, and the phrase barely contained left his lips but he could only sort of visualize Keith's cheese-eating grin every time a weird little pattern shift would occur in the arrangement, almost like he was daring the band to follow him. My Generation may not be the Who's favorite of their own albums, and only a very few of the songs would stay in their increasingly explosive live shows, but there's something about the sound and the vibe of the record that feels like an absolute arrival, and once you've heard it, you know what the brute force side of The Who is all about, and sure, you might get a country-esque ditty here and there, like Pete's swell lead vocal turn on a legal matter, but it's hard to argue that the results here aren't just astounding no matter how formative. Sure, Pete's kinda green as a songwriter, and Lambert and Stamp are knocking it out of the park as first-time managers, and Shell Tommy was pretty much recording all of his beat groups the same way. Regardless, to hear My Generation is to know the basics of the sheer power of The Who. Even if these were the last twelve or thirteen or so songs they'd ever release, this uppercut of a debut would still at least see the group as a footnote, at least a footnote in rock history. Fortunately, that wouldn't be the case, but unfortunately for this album, fate, contracts, and grudges would keep it in and out of print for years in varying degrees of listenability. In March of 1966, the band would release the single for Substitute on the Reaction label. A bonafide classic that was unfortunately marred by a stunted release, Substitute saw the band breaking their agreement with Shell Tommy in order to take control of the sound of their own albums and recordings. However, this presented at least a few (laughs) legal problems, so the original single was withdrawn. But when it was reissued, instead of having the song Circles on the B-side, it instead carried a recording called Waltz for a Pig, which was billed to the Who Orchestra, but was actually performed by the Graham Bond organization. That's right, there is no Who Orchestra, and no member of the band appears on the B-side at all. And I'm not even really getting into the US version of the single released with differing lyrics, because that's... Well... In a confusing catalog, this situation is one of the earliest and most complex examples of how the Who's discography became so scattershot. See, Shell Tommy would release yet another unsanctioned Who recording as a single every time they'd make a move. So if you trundle up to the record store, there'd be a few new singles, but you'd maybe not have a reference point for which one you'd want to actually buy. And I'm not sure of the terms of the contract or who violated what but in hindsight, it definitely looks like Shell Tommy was working overtime out of pure spite. Because if his defensive moves had succeeded in scaring The Who into sticking with him, those types of dual releases might have caused irreparable harm to the band's reputation for new single releases. A sort of cutting-off-your-nose-despite-your-face situation. Shell's singles didn't contain unheard material, they were all retreads from the My Generation album but they may have actively blocked Substitute from becoming the massive hit single that it always deserved to be. We're very lucky though that there's some surviving video footage of the group's appearance on the Music Hall de France show in March 1966 though, because we can see that crossroads in action. Oh sure, they play My Generation because they have to, they open with Substitute because they're promoting it, but the rest of the gig is littered with sweet power pop classics given the Who treatment like Man With Money and Dancing in the Street. I'm Those tight leaps and bounds that appear to show the band getting tighter as a unit would actually obscure the fact that in 1966, at some point, everyone was either kicked out of or quit the band besides Pete. Sometimes it was violence between band members, sometimes Keith was a bit much to take, but the infighting might have actually been the key to the nervous tension visible in the band's mere onstage stances. Looking far more secure and sure of themselves in their movements, seen for example on the French TV show Take 30, which offers a rare glimpse into some of those less polished early gigs. By August of this year, they'd seen their way to releasing the I'm a Boy single, and sure, it's a cracking pop song, but there's a lot more at play here than meets the eye. Kit Lambert had taken a shine to Pete Townsend. Kit was a student of the arts by blood, and he loved opera and theater when spared no expense to indoctrinate Pete into the world of finer things, even if this meant that the rest of the band might be left to sleep in a van while Kit treated Pete to fine gourmet dining. Influences such as these lead Pete to writing bigger projects, like the genesis for the I'm a Boy single, something called Quads. Pete would claim that it was more or less an opera about a future wherein parents can choose the gender of their children when something goes awry for the fourth child. And that he squished two or so hours worth of information into the one song, but this was the first time that many people had heard of things like gender confusion in a pop song, and for years, some fans would tell Pete how much the song, resplendent in its French horn overdubs and addictive harmony, had changed their lives for the better. Though it was pretty at odds with its B-side, a tune called In the City, put forth by John and Keith, that was a cute yet kind of slight track about little more than cool things that one can find well in the city but i'm a boy was quite a big hit in the uk but one has to wonder just how much more revolutionary it would become if shell tommy still hadn't been throwing out obstructionist singles to temper the band's chart success but he hadn't banked on the ready steady who ep that dropped in november of 1966 on the reaction label One of the more confounding and slight, yet highly enjoyable pieces of early Who ephemera is this five-song, 11-minute, 7-inch. The premise was simple. The Who had an entire episode of Ready, Steady, Go dedicated to them, so they rushed out a single with some of the songs they'd play on the show, albeit in slightly different recordings. rendition of circles with a correct title and most of the instruments seeming to be in tune with each other and it's flanked by stuff that frankly if you couldn't look it up to verify what i'm saying i wouldn't blame you for not believing that there's also a spot-on rendition of barbara ann with keith moon on lead vocals and an odd whistling solo and for some reason the theme to batman The two most interesting tracks here are Pete's Disguises, which sees the band using some backwards recording tricks for the first time, which must have sounded otherworldly at the time, and a super interesting piece called Bucket Tea, which is another surf-sounding tune designed to please Keith, who also sings the lead vocal. This one would go to number one in some Nordic countries while potentially being the least representative they'd ever released at the time. And sure, it's slight, but it's fun. You've not been able to just walk into a store and buy Ready Steady Who for years. Right now, in 2018, it's available on some expensive box set compilations, but this transitional EP from a transitional year holds a lot of secrets. Sure, few of the songs would go on to be seen as bona fide classics, but the playful nature of the Who is turned up full blast on this EP, and that humor would begin to turn a little bit darker each time out. At the time, if you were a teenager that had been reading about the dangerous equipment s- destroying band in the press, but this EP were the first thing you'd ever heard, one could excuse you for thinking that this was just a novelty group. And as fun as these 11 minutes are, the gulf between The Who's stage act and the contents of their records would only continue to widen. The kids That's the strains of Happy Jack, a single released in early December of 1966 that would straddle the line between the more cutesy aspects of the group's sound while also dedicating half of its running time to the band's towering and explosive builds. The track is notable not only for being the first real chart success that the band would have in America, but also the B-side, I've Been Away, which was the first true appearance of a John Entwistle penned tune on a Who release and, boy, what a difference. A waltz led by a piano about plans to frame your brother for jail time in a scorched-earth way? Maybe Pete wasn't the only one with some wacky ideas for lyrics. Yes, maybe- a week later The Who would release their second album, A Quick One, in December of 1966. A Quick One, sometimes known as the Happy Jack LP in America and a few other parts of the world possibly, was almost called Jigsaw Puzzle. Can't even hazard a guess on why, but what I can tell you is that the band wasn't making a ton of dough. Not only were their royalty rates on their records skimpy even by 1960s standards, but if you break your equipment at every turn, you're gonna rack up some bills. A pretty simple equation that led Kit Lambert to secure a publishing deal with Essex Music which would give each member a tidy but sorely needed lump sum of money. Just one catch. If they all wanted to get paid, they all had to write for the album. Right away I should mention that though there was barely a year between this album and the debut, that threat to go fully power pop turned out to be a promise here with precisely one throwback to the R&B days with a rollicking cover of Heatwave though some countries didn't even get that track and got the tune Happy Jack in its place but not on the UK pressing because uh, The Who's discography is kind of a mess and that's about all the reason you need. But a note to record geeks, though there are both stereo and mono mixes of the album, fans have sourced copies from all over the world trying to put together a fully homebrewed stereo version of the album and nothing doing. This is The Who's shortest album, but in many ways, it's also the most confusing. Here's an example. The album opens with Run Run Run, one of two tracks here that I'm a bit shocked or passed over for single material. And, okay, based on the copies that I have, here's a bit of the mono version. And here's the stereo mix. Now, both of them rock, sure, but these aren't just slightly different mixing decisions, these are radically different visions of the same song. And while that's the only example I'm going to touch on here specifically, I'm sure one could dig to hear many differences between any two differing issues of this short little pop wonder. Pete is still the dominating songwriter here, penning the aforementioned Run 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 as well as Don't Look Away and the absolutely sublime So Sad About Us. I guess the real question here becomes, what does a democratic Who actually sound like? When Roger's at the helm in his Buddy Holly-inspired See My Way, it's a straightforward skiffle on steroids romp complete with cardboard boxes for drums. But on the whole, it's usually considered to be the weakest track here, and if this is the worst, it wouldn't take a genius to figure out that the rest of the album is at least pretty pleasant all the way through. Moon's tracks are sort of the real wild cards here. His drumming is unparalleled and certainly his calling card, but I wasn't under the impression that Mr. Moon could play anything else, so you can imagine my shock at hearing the harpsichord heavy track known as I Need You Like I Need a Hole in My Head, which is intensely melodic, coated in falsetto vocals, and features a strange spoken middle section because Get this, Keith reportedly thought that the Beatles were sending him secret messages in their songs, so he tried to kind of replicate what he was hearing. Laws and jingo
2: are coming down, with the wives, you know. Excuse me, sir, will yeah. you move your car? Up?
0: And that's actually the less weird of Keith's two contributions, because elsewhere you get this little slice of weirdness called cobwebs and strange. Lambert recorded the group walking back and forth around a mono microphone playing these wind instruments to try to pull off some kind of parade-meets-proto-stereo effect, and it's in the ear of the beholder as to whether or not that's an effective thing. One thing that's not arguable is that the melody is borrowed practically note for note from a track called Eastern Journey from the soundtrack to the UK television series Man from Interpol. And another inarguable thing is that John Entwistle showed up with some originals, seemingly ready to give Pete a run for his money, literally. One track called Whiskey Man is a notably catchy tune about an imaginary drinking partner, and it comes with some interesting double-tracked vocals. John would claim that he had trouble singing the letter R, so in one channel, for the word friend, he sings Fwend, and on another channel, he'd double that with singing it as "flend," hoping that they would blend together and possibly just all come out properly in the wash. And while the tempo might be a bit sedate for the band in this period, with it being rumored that this was the first complete composition that John ever wrote, it's pretty astounding that he knocked it out of the park so well, but it's his other song here that would actually make Pete genuinely nervous about remaining the primary songwriter for The Who. That song, of all things, is called Boris the Spider. Going up my wall
2: can't tell
0: very small. So apparently one night, John Entwistle got drunk with Bill Wyman from the Rolling Stones and they spent their intoxicated time together making up silly names for animals, and he'd go so far as to take the spider from the drinking game and make him the star of this tune. And then gruesomely kill him while introducing his signature low growl. Oh, it might seem like I'm pulling your leg about the gravity of this tune, but Pete would lament in an interview that the track should have been a single and that it made him rush back to his home writing studio just to prove his metal. The song quickly became the band's most requested onstage number, so far at least, and would be the reason for John to decorate so much of his onstage gear, bases, clothing, and jewelry with campy versions of creepy things. A spiderweb-designed bass here, a spider necklace there, a Strange songs, sure, and while the album may seem like it's rife with a massive identity crisis, despite being quite fun and enjoyable, it all really comes together in the closing title track, a quick one while he's away.
2: Earl has been gone for a he was too home yesterday, but he ain't here.
0: The story goes that the band was about 10 minutes shy of completing this album to contractual specifications, as many of the tunes recorded around this time were either earmarked for singles and b-sides already, and the Essex deal made it so that the group would have to at least appear to all be contributing equally in the writing credits. To fix the issue, Kit Lambert suggested that Pete should simply write a 10 minute song. Instead. Pete stuck a bunch of shorter songs together to tell a story and took a major gamble that paid off quite well. The title track, A Quick One While He's Away, might arguably be the moment that The Who, as we know them, really starts to arrive on record. And it's all here in a tale as old as time about a lady that misses her partner, sleeps with an engine driver, is caught by her man, and is quickly forgiven, but it's so much more, really. Roger singing in a tempered and melodic voice throughout, John takes center stage as Ivor the engine driver, as various levels of compression in the background are used to make cymbals sound like steam engines, and when the band couldn't get cellists to play on the rousing climax, they just harmonized the word cello over and over. The album, known as A Quick One, couldn't be further away from the street-tough attitude of their debut, but it also can hardly be compared to anything else the band would ever really do. It's just so strikingly different. From the vibrant pop art cover to the knockout journey taken in the title track, it's possibly the most enjoyable album that'll frustrate you this side of Duran Duran's Rio, if you're trying to track down every single mix, but it's never a drag, and it's probably only not spoken about at as often as some of the band's more popular later work because, well, then we're putting a throw-it-against-the-wall-to-see-what-sticks type of album against definable classics like Quadrophenia, and that's not fair. In my generation, you get the sheer brute force power of the band. In a quick one, you get a lot of the novelty side, glimpses into each member's personality, and the very first mini-rock opera that I know to exist. And that's not too shabby if you ask me. Hey there, I just wanted to jump in quickly and say thank you so much for listening to Discography. I'm Mark with a C. If you want to hang out with us on social media, on Facebook, look us up. We're Discography on CPN. That's facebook.com slash Discography on CPN, as in Consequence Podcast Network. While we're at it, hey, look up Consequence Podcast Network on Facebook. Give it a like. If you want to hook up with me directly, I'm Facebook.com slash Mark with a C Music. Also, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Twitter.com slash Mark M-A-R-C-F-I, as in there is lo fi Low-Fi, Mid-Fi, and Mark-Fi. And I've been making records for years.
2: Make reparations just in case. Whoa, Jessica, I heard you like the I do too, so Jessica, days When they change their clothes, when they put on many But I think, please don't let my art die.
0: Right. I've made more music than I can count or keep up with, and you can get a hold of pretty much as much of it as you can handle at markwitheseed.com or markwitheseed.bandcamp.com. You can get the albums on vinyl, on compact discs, you can download them, or if you want, you can stream what I do on Spotify, Google Play. Apple Music, pretty much anywhere that you stream music that you don't want to physically hold, I'm there, and almost all my music is available as well. But if you're hardcore and you really want to help me and support my creative endeavors, and you're pretty aware that podcasting alone doesn't exactly pay all the bills but you're absolutely like mark it is so cool that you've been working on independent art for nearly 20 years and i'm so glad you're writing a book about that and i'm so glad that you're working on a three lp greatest hits of all the stuff that you've made i want to help you do that guess what not only can you help but you can get cool stuff in return for doing so at patreon.com slash mark with a c Perks start at only a dollar a month, but 2 dollars a month, whoo, you're getting more than you can keep up with. I'd also like to say thank you to the website thewhothismonth.com. Without whom there would be no season and I'd like to thank all of the hardcore who fans that have tried their very best to truel through The recesses of the Who's discography so people like me can even start maybe kinda making sense of it. And of course, thank you to Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, Keith Moon, John Entwistle, all members of the Who's crew. Any background music that you've heard during this episode has either been from Chris Abrisky, who you can find out more about at chrisabrisky.com, or Jordan McKenna. You just look up Jordan McKenna on SoundCloud, bam, lots of Jordan McKenna music for you. If you get a chance, please rate and review Discography on iTunes or wherever you acquire podcast materials for your ears because the more reviews we get, the more ears we get inside of. That's just the way algorithms work these days. Thank you so much for listening to These Links That Matter. Let's get back to the show. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: Hey, this is Cap, CPN Network Director. Mark and I bond over a lot of things, but most of all, music. We both obsess over it together and dive deep into nuanced collections of rare records to get that bigger picture. You probably know how it is. One day you realize that a bunch of your favorite records all have the same producer or session musician, and the next thing you know, you're on a wild goose chase for rare records hunting down more of those sweet sounds. Or say there's a band you love, like The Who, with an expansive catalog, different mixes of the same track, critical bootlegs. That's why I'm so excited that this season of discography is sponsored by Reverb LP. You might know Reverb as an incredible music gear resale marketplace. Well, Reverb LP is their marketplace for used and new music. Buy records, sell your records so you can have money to buy other records. They have an impeccable selection, which you can scope out online or even better via their app, which is available on Android and iOS. In fact, if you're looking to start your Who collection or fill in some gaps, we've got a virtual bin for you to flip through. Just go to lp.reverb.com handpicked discography and you'll see all the records discussed in this season. Reverb LP offers buyer protection so you won't ever have to worry about a bum deal. And say you're hunting down an unofficial release, rare tracks, bootlegs, you'll find them here. As far as I'm concerned, and this is me speaking like 100% personally, Reverb LP is the marketplace for record collectors download the app, scope out the store, or browse this season's discography at lp.reverb.com/handpicked/discography. And now, back to Mark.
2: Pictures of made my life so wonderful. Pictures of
0: By March of 1967, the band was back on the promo grind, returning to the old haunts of London's Marquee Club for a one-off performance for the TV show Beat Club. We are able to see that the band is still working on keeping the gang together while being simultaneously just as explosive as before. Plus... They've now added smoke bombs for the increasingly destructive finales of my generation. We're also blessed that there's surviving footage out there of the band recording their April 1967 single, Pictures of Lily, which is not only the first single the band would release on their very own label track records, but it's also the catchiest ditty about teenage masturbation this side of that one bonus track on that one Green Day album. But this one wasn't just a three chord banger. There's more modulations than i can keep track of and the changes are still baffling enough that before performing the song in a 2015 gig pete was heard to say who was i trying to impress when trying to refresh himself on the single for the thousandth time by summer the band was decked out in full psychedelic garb for the monterey pop festival famously they'd be playing the same bill with jimi hendrix who was also known to beat up his guitar just a little bit but neither one wanted to follow the other the running order for their sets were determined by a coin toss, and The Who went on first with a succinct six-song set. Of course, as they'd only played America maybe two months prior, it was a very, very big deal that the band was introducing themselves to potentially the hippest possible American audience, but sadly, the band had relied on rented equipment, and frankly, their set sounded a bit puny and scattershot even for them.
2: For
0: the blues. No matter, the band was a highlight. You heard him, But right around this time, on yet another long airplane journey, Pete took LSD with Keith Moon and then left his body. No, really, he left his body completely. Could look down, could see himself sleeping in the chair, saw the top of the plane, and realized that if he didn't go back immediately, he would likely die. Pete would swear off the hard stuff and look for something new to believe in. No word on how Keith's trip went. Quickly afterwards, the band Rush released a single containing a pair of Rolling Stones covers, The Last Time and Under My Thumb. See, a few members of the Stones were arrested on totally trumped-up drug charges, and in a show of solidarity, Heath, Roger, and Pete quickly recorded this duo of tunes while John was away on his honeymoon, yet those poor stones were already released by the time the single hit the shelves so it mostly becomes this weird little footnote. But their appearance on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour was the exact opposite of a footnote. Tommy Smothers had seen The Who at Monterey and invited the band onto the show to mime a few songs, have some fun banter, and break all their stuff, that's exactly what happened, but. Remember those smoke bombs I mentioned? Well, Keith Moon was getting carried away with how much explosive he'd started using to make the destruction bigger and louder, so Pete's beating his guitar into his amp, while Keith's bass drum has more or less been turned into a
2: cannon, and…
0: The makeshift cannon exploded right against Pete's head, setting his hair on fire and also marking the beginnings of his significant hearing problems. Oh, and they also played what was then their latest single, I Can See For Miles, which came from the album The Who Sellout, released in December of 1967.
2: 1967
0: conjures up images of people with flowers in their hair, fields of hippies, you know, general summer of love stuff, but if you're a band that's somehow scruffier than the Rolling Stones who wrecks their instruments with a drummer that drives cars into swimming pools and wrecks hotel rooms, where on earth would you fit in with that? Easy. You just don't. And The Who didn't even try, but instead set their sights on what would soon turn into their very first masterpiece of an album, The Who Sellout. It's a concept album, but an easy one to understand. Though The Who would occasionally play along with the BBC's rules of specifically re-recording their music so that the musicians' union would get paid, the band knew that it was pirate radio that had really put them into everyone's ears in the first place. And so, The Who Sellout was born to mimic a pirate radio broadcast. Colliding styles of music with sometimes real but mostly fake station IDs and commercials for real and definable products would abound. If Andy Warhol had made records instead of visual art, It'd probably be a lot like this album. The Who just weren't screwing around about this whole pop art thing. But first, here's a word from our sponsors.
2: You've been working so hard lately, and your boss just
0: Drink. We've got mediocre
2: pizza. It'll technically keep them alive. We've got animatronic animals. You can find love at first sight. There's single moms and single dads while the kids play whack-a-mole. If they win enough tickets, they can win a pencil. So it's educational. Chuck E. Cheese. When you can't go.
0: Drink. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming already in progress. If you're not already too familiar with The Who, when you scan the track list of The Who Sell Out, the song you're most likely to recognize is the aforementioned I can see for miles and not for nothing. Pete Townsend reportedly felt that it was the best thing he'd ever written, and took it quite hard when the song couldn't make it into the top five in his home country, and who can blame him for having an ego concerning this song? There's nothing less than perfect about the track, from the engrossing harmonies to Keith Moon's scattershot drum builds that sound as if he'll fall apart at any time while actually keeping the group together, the power chords that are clearly built for the best bang for your windmill buck, the guitar solo mostly built on one note, Roger's delivery of the lyrics, which might seem crazy and kinda stalkery at first, but eventually becomes clearer as sort of a superpower. Yeah, Pete's not wrong, it's a perfect pop single that rightfully deserved to be a classic. It may be the most well-known song here, and sure, it holds a place in history as a song so heavy that the Beatles would set out to best it with Helter Skelter, but this album as a whole is really one big piece. The Who weren't strangers to jingles, though. Pete had already done a radio commercial for the Air Force, and there was already a Coke commercial, and... Okay, listen, if it's Who music in those commercials, why on earth can't said music have a place on a Who album? Thus, you've got a wacky and far better-than-it-ought-to-be commercial for Heinz Baked Beans written by John Entwistle that isn't too far removed from Cobwebs and Strange. You've got Pete's wordy commercial comes story about Odorono, and elsewhere they show for Charles Atlas, Medak, and in between those, actual commercials from Radio London. As a matter of fact, this listener wouldn't have any handle on what the UK's pirate stations actually sounded like unless this album existed. It's historic, it's ironic, and it's the only thing like it. But get this, there are songs, too. Great, great songs. And they're all a bit different from each other because, well, if this is supposed to be a radio broadcast, the Who would need to sound like any number of different groups. On that front, the tones are diverse and often cleaner than they've ever used, but it also means that it rarely sounds identifiable as the Who to ears that may only have known, say, My Generation, Happy Jack, or I Can See for Miles. Seriously, the first song, Armenia City in the Sky, is a psychedelic tour de force with backwards guitars and cymbals, and it's sung by... Speedy Keen, that's right. The first track on the album doesn't sound less like The Who, it couldn't sound less like The Who, but it hits Psychedelia right in the nose, and it's worthwhile to bring up the vocalist, because there's really only three songs on this album that Roger Daltrey sings full-on lead vocals for. I mean, he's there, but he's often singing harmony with the rest of the members. One could be convinced that Daltrey was fired halfway through this album, and it wouldn't be that hard to believe. And one of those great tracks with multiple Who vocalists piled on top of each other is the effervescent and acoustic Marianne with the Shaky Hands. And sure, it could either be about a lady with trembling hands or it can be, well, the next logical step after pictures of Lily. What it inarguably is, though, is a track that would have made for a cracking single if it were only just a bit easier to recognize as the Who for pedestrian radio listeners. Shaky Roger does take the lead on the tale of Tattoo, a quirky, light, and enormously catchy arpeggiated ditty about two young boys that want to become men via skin decoration, and the consequences they'd face as a result. To
2: my life, Tattoo. I'm a man. As unlikely
0: as it sounds, this was the song that would last longest in The Who's stage shows from the album, and a fun bit of trivia about the tune is that seemingly out-of-place "Rudy toot toot line towards the end. It was rumored to be a dig at the catchphrase of one Bobby Pridden. At the time, he was a roadie for the group, but would eventually graduate to being the cat that did their live sound for nearly 50 years. For my money, beyond I Can See For Miles, the most affecting songs on this album are the three that Pete would sing lead vocals on. There's the wistful, Our Love Was, and it's a beautiful ode to faded feelings with John's bass octaves hammering those feelings home, and you'll also find I Can't Reach You, which is a gorgeous ode to a failing May-December romance, and not for the last time on this record, there'd be some nods to themes that would pop up again later. Quite possibly the most shocking moment on the record comes right after John's deceptively complex Silas Stingy. The band dispenses with the radio play aspect completely, and we're met with little more than an acoustic guitar laying down some light jazz chords and Pete's plaintive voice in the song Sunrise.
2: You take away the-
0: The song had been kicking around since the first batch of demos Pete had brought in for the band, and while to our ears it might just sound like a touching ode to being bowled over by beauty, in reality it was a huge disappointment to Keith Moon, who had sung lead on the first song completed for the album, an energetic track about Jaguar cars, and as Sunrise replaced it on the album, well, how would you feel if your song got lopped off the record in favor of a song that you don't appear on at all, and that move just also happens to the concept as well. It's a weird move in general, but at the same time, if one were to compare the general quality of Jaguar to Sunrise, it's clear that Sunrise is the more accomplished composition and recording. Also found on the second half is a pretty slight composition called Relax that highlights the group harmony, but this one's also pretty obviously built to be stretched out and jammed on in concert and it kind of makes me wonder why it wasn't jo- dropped for the song Jaguar, you know, just to settle the group tensions, but I've never heard anyone other than Keith Moon argue that Jaguar was a massive missed opportunity. Its inclusion would have kept the concept solid, but the tracklist as it stands is already considered to be a whimsical psychedelic classic, so it's safe to say that it all worked out for the best. Arguably, though, the most important part of the Who Sell Out is a six-minute track called Rael occupying similar territory as the title track of the A Quick One album, but where that long piece were a bunch of song fragments being stuck together end-to-end to tell a story and also to fill up the contractually demanded running time, Pete has claimed that Rayel was actually a two-hour opera condensed into just over five minutes. And if that's true, one has to wonder why the circulating solo Pete demo doesn't reflect that extended running time. In fact, it's highly similar in arrangement to the version here on Sellout and only about two and a half minutes longer, which makes the notion rather suspect to me, but it is true that it was once a bit longer at least. When the band came into the studio one morning, they found that a hapless janitor had thrown the multi-track tape out into the trash. Accounts vary as to exactly how much of the studio was demolished out of anger and retaliation, but you can't ignore the very obvious edits where they tried to stitch a usable version together. In fact, the band tried to re-record it all together, but we're never happy with the vibe and it may be the reason that the musical portion of the song was later stripped for parts in a very, very, very big way. The Who sellout is a muddled masterpiece if there ever was one. A pop group reaching their first rungs of perfection, but still not totally sure how to address all the moving parts, and you'll be able to pick this one out of a lineup on a record store shelf. Each member's featured in the artwork to shill for a product. Reportedly, Roger Daltrey was left for so long in a tub full of freezing baked beans that he contracted pneumonia, and, you know, depending on when it was shot, that could frankly answer for why he's not more vocal on the album, but... We do need to talk about some of the other outtakes from the album because there's enough left in the vault that sellout could easily, easily be fleshed out into a double album that carries the promised concept throughout. Not only are there dark and brilliant pieces like Melancholia, there's destructive instrumentals like Sodding About, a blistering studio take on Eddie Cochran's Summertime Blues, any number of unused commercials and jingles created by John and Keith, some of which were literally phoned in from a pub up the street from the studio. But there are smashing and shimmering pop wonders like Girl's Eyes and Glittering Girl, which was not only left off the album, but it was abandoned altogether despite being a bit of a contender to be a follow-up single to I Can See For Miles. But perhaps the biggest tragedy of the embarrassment of riches that the group would whittle down into the Who sellout? is a track called Early Morning Cold
2: Taxi. Early Morning Cold Taxi Early morning cold taxi. Each time I do it, I feel so down and
0: out. Lyrically it's mostly about being in a good mood during a walk of shame, but interestingly it was a co-write between Roger Daltrey and roadie Cy Langston. They'd paired up to try out being a songwriting team, but Roger had claimed to the band that he'd written the whole thing. And the group was suspicious, and whatever issues they had with an outside writer once the situation became a bit more obvious would lead to the song being canned, when again, there's really no question that this was a power pop classic that would have only served to strengthen the album. And, okay, listen, there's a number of places online where you can read about sound quality for various pressings, and that's such a sticky subject amongst hardcore Who fans that I'm simply not going to screw around with getting in that line of fire. Like, really, I'm not even touching it. One thing I will and can say is that up until now, the band's works had been primarily issued in mono. For example, the My Generation album didn't even get a stereo mix until the 2000s, And it's arguable whether or not they even came close to doing that one properly. But the Who sellout was the first album to really have the band behind the stereo issue from the get-go. And I've got no beef with the stereo mix because this is a fantastic and one-of-a-kind record full of great songs, but truthfully, though there might be some weird tape speed issues with the mono mix, it's the one that I prefer. I have a beat-up UK mono vinyl and that's my go-to. There's a lot of great things to be found in that stereo mix. I mean, it is a vaguely psych record, so a big stereo spread probably wouldn't upset anyone here, but the mono is just beefier and, well, as the pirate radio stations were broadcasting in mono via AM radio, the album just makes more sense in a mono presentation to me. Plus, there's little differences, different guitar solos and stuff depending on which mix you end up with, and my favorite ones all happen to be on the mono pressings, but your mileage may vary. When the concept is as self-aware and historic as the Who sell out, And when the perfect concept for the band comes with such untouchable writing, such perfect performances, and so much that would widen the palette for the band, I'm not going to bog you down in any more details. The band had so much material to choose from that there was almost no way that this record wasn't going to be their first masterpiece, but where could they go from here? The divide between the sound of the Who on record could range from jaunty, to scary, to silly, to poppy, to blistering, and all points in between, but it wasn't lost on the band that the one things that the records hadn't come close to duplicating was their onstage sound. This was cause for worry, because with each town the group laid waste to, more buzz would build up, and word of mouth is a tricky thing. You tell your friends about the wild group you saw when you took your kid's sister to see Herman's Hermits, the band that broke the guitars and deafened everyone with a drummer that seemed like a real live cartoon, and there'd be explosions and smoke bombs, so they run off to check out a record and they hear something like Sunrise. Well, of course, things weren't going to add up to the average consumer. The closest they'd come so far to capturing their stage sound on a recording was the middle of that early Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere single, but meanwhile, even that sound had changed. John Entwistle was experimenting with his rig, even having bass strings specially made for him and as a result his tone was like a soaring melodic jet engine, and often what people would think Pete was playing was actually coming out of John. But on record, John just seemed like a very good bassist rather than the instrument reinventing genius that was blowing out eardrums, so understandably a decision was made to try and capture a concert on tape. Few strides along these lines had ever been successful. When the Beatles, Stones, Monkeys, and Kinks all tried to do it, screams of teenage girls would drown out anything the mics could pick up, but The Who had an advantage. They were proud to be known as one of the loudest bands in the world, if not the loudest at the time, so now it was just a matter of capturing the right gig. They'd planned to record their April 5th and 6th gigs at the legendary, but very new at the time, Fillmore East in New York City, and while those tapes were only eventually released in 2018, 50 years after the event, the massive divide between even the toughest-sounding Who studio recording and anything done on a stage is absolutely staggering. When I Can't Explain first appeared on a 7-inch single, it was a peppy little pop tune. By the time they were playing it in 1968, it was a slower and leaden song bordering on Proto sludge you a slew of covers, especially fond of Eddie Cochran and Johnny Kidd tunes, but it was the long improvisations that were the real highlight of this period. For example, Relax from the Who sellout may not have been the most striking song on that record, but on stage by 1968, it had become a transcendent 12-minute ode to exploring inner space. Sure enough of themselves that they'd already dropped hit singles from their repertoire like Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere and I Can See for Miles, but my generation isn't something they could get away with ignoring at the time, and any rendition of that one could now last up to around 40 minutes. The first shot at trying to make a live Who record didn't go the way they hoped, but history has shown that that was absolutely for the best. <laughs> When those tapes went awry, and as Pete's disillusion with the record-buying public became palpable, 1968 turned into one of the strangest years in Who history. The group was floundering, unsure of what direction to take, and that's absolutely evident in, well, for example, Kit Lambert would suggest in May 1968 that the band did an album to coincide with Wimbledon, literally suggesting that the album be titled Who's for Tennis and the group was desperate enough that they even tried to be good sports about it, if you'll pardon the pun, and schedule some sessions to make good on the idea, but yeah, that one was probably best left unfinished. Though some cracking tunes would eventually see the light of day, Were certainly begun around this time, and these tunes could be rad. they, They could be kind of spiritual in nature. Songs like Faith in Something Bigger, and then the Ode to Reincarnation known as Glow Girl were a pretty distinct left turn from Happy Jack, and the reason for this is simple and direct. One of Pete's art school friends, Mike McInerney, had handed him a book called The God Man, which was all about a spiritual avatar named Mehur Baba. Baba was recognized by his followers as the representation of God on Earth. And though he'd taken a vow of silence, his teachings, legends, and writings had an astounding effect on the Pete Townsend who had been looking for answers in pills, groupies, auto-destructive art, LSD. Instead, there was a brand new Pete who finally had something to believe in. And all that this Avatar asked in return was for? Love. Pretty good bargain. By summer of 1968, Pete was a fully-fledged Baba disciple, but you wouldn't have known it from the band's singles at the time. There was a super British song about dog racing, fittingly titled Dogs, and though the band would in later years sometimes point to the song as the group's nadir, it's actually a pretty cool and catchy little slice of life. Side of that single was even weirder another sort of early rock and roll pastiche with high harmonies and a bass solo called call me lightning which would be released as a standalone radio single in the US and this was followed barely a month later with potentially the least likely of all of the who's hit singles to date magic bus While it only made it to around number 22 on the new Musical Express's singles charts, this Bow inspired throwaway about a guy that literally wants to buy a magical bus to see his girlfriend but can't stop haggling about the price would eventually rival Boris the Spider as a constant audience request, would rival my generation for just how long a three-chord song could be stretched out in concert, and would somehow be one of the most enduring classic rock radio staples of all time. And John got to do another slab of creepy camp on Magic Bus's B side with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but this strange period of time was merely the precursor to the summation of all the lofty goals. track records belonged to their management and was distributed by Polydor over in the US, the Decca label wasn't too happy to learn that the band didn't intend to release a full album in 1968 and they couldn't help but notice that somehow, against all odds, this strange little song called Magic Bus kept picking up radio traction. Their response? Well, they decided to release an album we won't be covering here in full called The Magic Bus Who On Tour. Why won't I be covering it? Because despite what the title might lead you to believe that the contents were recorded live, it's actually all studio work. The band had no input at all, and this little cash-in release has a really bizarre odds and ends tracklist. Somehow the compilation includes, say, Run Run Run, Disguises, and Someone's Coming, which was the first John Entwistle song sung by Roger on the UK B-side to I Can See For Miles, but somehow the compilation has no my generation, no substitute. No, I can't explain. Actually, no hits or singles at all besides the title track, pictures of Lily, and if you really stretch, I suppose you can count Call Me Lightning. The record was literally released to trick record buyers. And frankly, I've already spent too much time on this crummy platter. It's a shame that some live tracks couldn't be salvaged or used here though, because as evidenced by the Fillmore East recordings, The band began the year at the very top of their game, but by December 1968, they were blowing their contemporaries off the stage and even making some of them a little bit nervous. No, seriously, get this. The Rolling Stones filmed a TV special for the BBC called Rock and Roll Circus. In it, you'd get to see clowns and animals and acrobats, plus performances by John Lennon's short-lived Dirty Mac, Jethro Tull, Taj Mahal, The Who, and the Rolling Stones themselves, except for one problem. The Stones hadn't been doing much live work, and they simply weren't at their best for their performance. Yet The Who did such an explosive and incendiary take on a quick one while he's away that some speculate that this was the reason for the project being shelved, that the Stones didn't want to be upstaged on their own TV special. Rumors have even abounded that there was a period where the Rolling Stones had considered re editing the show to become The Who's Rock and Roll Circus. The Who had clearly, really, and truly arrived as a formidable live unit. Now they'd simply need a record to match the goods that they were capable of delivering. A bigger concept than the Who sellout was needed. The band was still hemorrhaging money, their managers took a 40% cut, and as John and Keith had been approached by Jimmy Page to be the rhythm section for a new band that he was starting, which by the way Keith remarked would absolutely go down like a lead balloon, it was pretty clear that if their next gamble didn't pay off monetarily and creatively, the Who was pretty much over. Of course, the fact that I'm here talking about it at all should be a pretty good spoiler on how the project went over, Tommy was released by The Who in May of 1969. Tommy is a rock opera. A world-famous one, and there's probably not much I can tell you about it that you wouldn't already know. It can be played as one long continuous piece, or most of the songs can stand alone as individual compositions. The very short version of the story contained within is as follows. Just after the First World War, a young boy witnesses a horrific murder at the hands of his mother and is traumatized, unable to speak, see, or hear. He experiences life through vibrations, which are represented by the music of the Who and somehow he can also play pinball. The trauma is eventually broken, he becomes a bit messianic, and that ultimately doesn't go well for anyone. That's as short as I can make it, really. Tommy should not work on any level, but it does. Not only breathing brand new life into the Who, but completely shifting their fortunes, their stage show, their inner workings, and their audience overnight. So how do we get here and how does it really work? Well, Kit Lambert had been trying to get Pete to write something big and linear pretty much from the word go. And Pete did a long 11-page interview with Jan Winter for Rolling Stone where he more or less rambled until he came up with the bulk of Tommy's outline. As Rolling Stone printed the conversation in its entirety, Pete surely must have felt somewhat constrained to stick to the blueprint that hardcore fans had read over and over, waiting for this magical story album to deliver on its promise to tie science fiction and spirituality together with some pummeling rock and roll. And Pete does get a lot of deserved credit for Tommy, but it's also fair to really credit the entire group. I mean, John Entwistle wrote some of the darker material in this story, Keith Moon suggested the setting for the finale, Roger would basically embody the character of Tommy on stage, Kit Lambert would suggest plot points to better instill some rising and falling dramatic action or even just that an overture might be kinda nice to have, and from Mondays to Thursdays the band would work on arrangements together at IBC Studios, but would still gig on the weekends just to make ends meet. If there was ever a true moment of unification for the band, the Tommy era might be the ultimate representation of the group being more than the sum of any individual's parts. While all of The Who's early records sound at least a bit different from each other, Tommy not only sounds completely separate from anything that preceded it in the Who canon save for the end of Rael and the then unreleased recording of Glowgirl, but it also doesn't sound a thing like they do on stage. Nope, the music is a nice and crisp wall of sound, but the vocals are always pushed to the absolute forefront, making sure that the narrative takes center stage. Despite the odd mix, it's clear to these ears that Keith Moon is the real MVP on this version of the story though. (laughs) There's more acoustic guitars and French horns here than you'd normally hear on a WHO record, but the term rock opera should not scare you. There's no orchestra here, and it's really just a bunch of rock songs that happen to go together quite nicely. You didn't
2: hear it. you didn't see it. you won't see nothing, one never in your life you never heard it. How
0: There is a bit of confusion over exactly what Tommy saw and how he saw it, but it's strongly inferred that his mother and father killed the lover that Tommy's mother had taken when she'd assumed that her husband was killed in the war, I think. Anyways, Roger would always go to great pains to point out that Tommy tries to interject that he heard and saw everything, and Pete has mentioned in a documentary about the album called Sensation that Tommy only saw it reflected in a mirror, which certainly helps that part of the narrative because Tommy apparently spends most of the album looking at himself. And that's one of the kind of beautiful things about Tommy. Yeah, it's very heavy on the narrative, but it's also open-ended enough at most points to let you connect the story dots in any fashion that you'd like. Time becomes a really personal journey for many people for that very reason. And, and what are those vibrations, the ones that are delivered by the Who, what do they sound like? What do they feel like? Now, Tommy being picked as a name is pretty fitting as it was also the nickname for British soldiers in the First World War, and his shell-shocked parents are always looking for a quick fix like sick kid, cool, find a pimp, shoot him full of drugs, try another quack doctor, and eventually this poor kid is being passed off to other family members. Who are written and voiced by John Entwistle. The two darkest characters are Tommy's Uncle Ernie, who sees a prime opportunity for some horrific sexual activity that he couldn't be caught for dabbling in and he also writes the psychopathic cousin kevin who seems to be absolutely gleeful in beating the afflicted child up in new and creative ways what
2: would you do if I chose-
0: point, people figure out that Tommy is pretty amazing at pinball, though the circumstances are hardly touched on, and while Pinball Wizard is a wonderfully perverse and unlikely pop music classic, it was literally written to impress a critic named Nick Cohn, who promised to give the album a five-star review with an extra ball if Pete could somehow work his favorite game into the album. I mean, seriously, you can't make this stuff up.
2: Sure plays a mean pinball.
0: Eventually, Tommy's mom notices that Tommy keeps staring into the mirror, potentially the same one that he saw the murder in. And hey, while we're on the subject, what did Tommy's parents do with the dead body? Like, did they eat it? Or drive in the middle of the night to bury it? And if so, who did they get to watch Tommy? Were they the kind of jerks that were like, Well, he can't see what we're doing anyways, who cares if he just lost all his senses? We got ourselves a body to bury, Whittily, ding-dang-ding-ding-do, but anyways, yes, she breaks the mirror, Tommy sees all the adulation he's receiving first for being very good at pinball, and later for simply being quote-unquote healed, and then he goes pretty damn megalomaniacal. The
2: crowd went crazy as Tommy left the stage. (laughs) Little Sally was lost for the price of a
0: touch and a gash across her face. His fans want to be just like him, of course, so he starts a holiday camp where he tries to replicate his own experiences for them, and that too goes down like a lead balloon and that's that. But importantly, the days of the simple three-minute three-chord wonders are thrown out of the window here. Have you ever actually looked at the tablature for this thing? They can't just play a regular old C chord. Instead, they'll find the most difficult way to play and finger whatever chord is called for on this recording, which serves to make this one beautifully dense and immersive listen. Were Tommy a purely instrumental album that purported to represent the same type of story, it'd still be a classic. But Roger's growl really arrives here. Pete's guitars are trebly and cutting, the band, their producers, management, and engineers They're all firing on all cylinders, all on the same page, and as a result, Tommy was rightfully greeted as a masterpiece with nary a wasted second out of its 75-minute running time. It never really stopped bowling people over. And with such great songs at every turn, it's little wonder that there were no less than three really big and beloved singles from this piece. The aforementioned Pinball Wizard, the triumphant I'm Free, and the closing portion, the second half of the We're Not Gonna Take It Suite. See Me, Feel Me.
2: It
0: wasn't the first rock opera. It wasn't the first concept record. But at the time, it was certainly the biggest and arguably the best. The Who brought high art into lowbrow rock and roll, and it's not even... even a question if it was successful or not. It sold over 2 million copies worldwide, just this version alone, which is pretty amazing when you consider that, well it is a spiritual allegory about a blind kid who can play pinball. That's an amazing feat no matter who wrote and performed the thing. Tommy is deserving of pretty much any accolade it's ever garnered just for working at all when by any stretch of logic, this thing could have spelled certain doom in less capable hands. The Who had already arrived, but Tommy? Tommy woke the neighbors up, and now all eyes were on the band. What next? What next indeed? Well, listen, we're going to find out next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Discography. I've been your host, Mark with a C. Discography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. It's recorded in Orlando, Florida, right here in Mark with a C's home studio. Again, if you want to hang out with us on social media, facebook.com slash discography on CPN. If you want to follow me and my musical endeavors specifically, you can do so at facebook.com slash music. You can follow me at Twitter. I'm at markfi, M-A-R-C-F-I. If you really want to look at me on Instagram, go right ahead. Instagram.com slash markwitha. That's right, just M-A-R-C-W-I-T-H-A, because I never finish typing it. And of course, you can check out my music at markwithac.bandcamp.com. We've got got lots of great episodes just just waiting on deck for you you have no idea just how immersive this season is going to be it's so immersive i can't even talk straight thank you so much for this opportunity i will be talking to you again real soon i'll see you next week my friends until then take care